Judges chapter 15. We'll look at the entire chapter and I'll begin reading at verse 1. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, Let me go into my wife and into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then Samson went and caught three hundred foxes, and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines, and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. So Samson said to them, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Now the Philistines went up and camped in Judah, and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? So they answered, We have come up to arrest Samson, to do to him as he has done to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom, and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. But I said to him, We have come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, saying, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. So it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called the place Ramoth Lehi. Then he became very thirsty, so he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called his name En-Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. He judged Israel twenty years in the days of the Philistines. Amen. Well, there are some preachers that think there should be no sarcasm in the pulpit. Now, while I think preachers need to be careful with how sarcastic or humorous we can be or they can be, there is an effect that devices like sarcasm and humor, sarcasm and humor bring. I mean, besides, there are many humorous moments in Scripture that teach us something very important. And certainly that's exactly what we see here in Judges 15. We are meant to laugh at the foxes. We are meant to laugh at all the plans of the Philistines 
and how God continues to thwart them by his servant Samson. And the lesson is meant to be clear with respect to this uh, humorous nature of what we see. Namely, it's meant to teach us how silly it is to be an enemy of the people of God. And so there is humor in Judges 15. But it's also meant to make us cry just a little bit as well. And the real problem, the real tragedy that we see in the entire book of Judges, but even in the Samson narrative, is the complacency of Israel. They can have turned from their God. They don't even cry out to him when they're under oppression. And now they're going to hand over their deliverer. They're going to hand over their savior. They're going to hand over the one God raised up to save them and to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. We've really seen how far Israel has degenerated. Remember, that's kind of the dual theme or the dual, one of the dual themes that we see in the book of Judges. We see it's God's so great salvation. It's the deliverance that God brings. But in contrast with that, we see the degeneration of Israel. We see the canonization of Israel. As Daniel Block says, they become more like the nations around them when they were supposed to be the people of God. They were supposed to be different. They were supposed to follow God's law that was laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. So they've degenerated quite far uh, by the time we come to Samson. And so even so, that they don't even ask for a deliverer. They don't even ask uh, to be delivered from their oppression. That typical cycle that we see in Judges is not followed. They sin, there's oppression, now God is going to deliver, but they don't even cry out in their servitude. That is the problem. Again, the main problem is this picture of complacency. This picture of complacency in serving sin. Israel is quite content to serve their gods. They're quite content to be under the Philistines. And the main problem is they obey the Philistines, though, rather than obey the Lord their God, even turning on their deliverer. And so with such a complacent people, one might ask, how can anyone really be saved? If man is so happy in his sin, how is it uh, that there can be a so great salvation? Well, thanks be to God that there is salvation in Christ Jesus. And in Judges 15, we learn that salvation can only be because of Yahweh's doing. Salvation can only be something that God does. And there are two reasons why. Because man is just too happy in his sin, and God's servants are so weak on their own. We need God to bring that salvation. We need God to do that. That is the main thing that we see uh, in this chapter. And the lessons that, are, that we're going to see are going to probably elicit two responses, or two differing responses. It's either going to make us laugh, or it's going to make us cry. And so we've I've structured the chapter under the, uh, that sort of uh, focus. So the first point is going to be vengeance that makes us laugh in verses 1 through 8. Then we'll see loneliness that makes us cry in verses 9 through 20. So vengeance that makes us laugh, verses 1 through 8. Then we're going to see loneliness that makes us cry in verses 9 through 20. So let's first look at vengeance that makes us laugh in verses 1 through 8. Context is important, and we know the overarching verses, the main verses that we see in the Samson narrative, Judges 13, 5, uh, in that birth announcement, we see the angel of the Lord appearing to Mrs. Manoah, and he says there, he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So God is going to deliver uh, Israel by way of Samson, even though they haven't asked for it. And then the other key verse is Judges 14, verse 4. 
as Samson wanted to go get this wife of Timnah, we see that it is of the Lord. Verse 4, but his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. And the reason he's seeking an occasion, a provocation, is again because the people of Israel are complacent. They're happy in their sin. And so God and God's servant Samson are looking for a provocation in order to kind of uh, stoke the fire. So in order to cause a conflict to happen, that Samson can then deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. And so we see that uh, with this wife from Timnah. Uh, We see Samson's strength as he tears this lion apart. We see it comes from God. The Spirit came upon him. We know something about Samson's strength before the Timnites know that and before the Philistines know that. And so he walks in. Remember, we talked about the secrets uh, of Judges 14. He doesn't want anybody to know that he's strong. Now they looked at him and 30 guys came to the the wedding feast uh, because they saw he was quite a brutish looking fellow. Uh, but they didn't realize just how strong he truly is. And so we see this provocation uh, with, by way of this riddle that he brings, this riddle that he says about the lion and the honey, and they threaten his wife, and his wife then vexes him. And so then he gives in, and that then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, verse 19 of chapter 14, and he kills 30 of their men. He gets some clothing, uh, gets some garments from these Philistines. So there is a provocation But then things seem to go back to normal for the most part. Verse 20, Samson goes back. He goes, I'm sorry, verse 19 of chapter 14. He goes to his father's house and then his wife is inexplicably given to his companion who had been his best man. So the Philistines think uh, everything's probably just fine. But as we see, everything is not just fine for the Philistines. There does seem to be this interplay throughout the Samson narrative. The Philistines try something, they think they've won, and then God uh, brings them down and shows that they are not in control at all. And so that continues here, where we see vengeance because of Samson's wife. And so this is in verses 1 through 5. And the occasion is his wife being given away. Now, I've tried to point out as we've gone through this, I've tried to point out as I've taught on Uh, chapter 13 before is that there are differing views when it comes to how we view Samson and there is a divide between the modern commentators and our dead friends our old commentators the modern commentators view Samson as just doing this all for himself whereas the old boys recognize though not perfect Samson does recognize where his help comes from he is lonely he is by himself And again, he's not as bad as we all make him out to be. And perhaps he's not as brutish as we all might consider. And one evidence of that is he wants to go and get his wife. There's this big row that happens at the wedding. He wants to now come and consummate that marriage. And so we see in verse 1, After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, that's going to be important for verses 3 and following, but it's this wheat harvest. Hampson, after he's calmed down, he goes to visit his wife with a young goat. That's an ancient Near Eastern way of bringing, saying a box of chocolates. He's bringing flowers. He's bringing a box of chocolates. He's coming to try and get his wife and try to uh, consummate the marriage uh, that he thought uh, with the woman he thought was still his wife. So he goes and he says to her, rightly so, let me go into my wife, into her room uh, to consummate the marriage. 
But then we see her father would not permit him to go in. So again, all these occasions are for uh, uh, God to bring a, a, a provocation to seek uh, um, a reason, an occasion to go against the Philistines. But her father would not permit him to go in. And so her father says, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Now, I guess he's explaining it a little bit. He's trying to defend himself. I mean, he could have waited. Yes, I get Samson ran off in a huff, but his bride-to-be just routed him out. I mean, I would be a little angry too, but he's, look at that. He still wants to, you know, be married to this lady. And so he goes, and the father then says, but I just really thought you thoroughly hated her, so I just decided to give her away. I gave her to your companion. Look, I gave her away. And, you know, since she's gone, what about her younger sister? Wouldn't she be wonderful? Is not her younger sister better than she? That's something that every daughter wants to hear. My sister is far prettier than I am. You know, parents, if you think that, just don't say it out loud. But her father decided to say it out loud anyway. And so is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And so Samson does not want this. Samson then uses this as an occasion to move against the Philistines. And so he says in verse 3, Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Remember, he is a judge in Israel. He is meant to be a deliverer. And he is using these occasions to come against Israel and to bring judgment upon them. So what he is saying here is, if anything should happen to my wife and her father and her family, that's not on me. They provoked this. They brought this upon themselves. Many, and for many reasons, they brought this upon themselves. You know, certainly we saw how she gave it or she um, uh, 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 vexed Samson uh, to try and get the answer to that riddle. I mean, Samson is alone in all this. Samson is by himself throughout this entire narrative. The ladies, I mean, his parents love him, but the ladies that seem to be the ones that he, he gravitates to always betray him. Uh, in the end. And so, but he says, this time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines. If I harm them, battle's on. We're ready to go now. And so what does he do? Verse four, it's all, again, we should be laughing. This is funny stuff. I mean, he's going to burn the wheat. I mean, he says, then Samson went down, caught 300 foxes, and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put torches between each pair of tails. And so again, how do you get 300 foxes? I have no idea how that works. So he grabs a bunch of them, he ties them together, and then puts some torches on them. And the reason that he ties them together is so that it's like a three-legged race. You know, you're only as fast as your weakest link. So one slows down, uh, they can't go into their various dens. So if one gets tired, they both have to wait and the fire will just ignite uh, the grain. And so it's quite genius, really. I mean, he is a military strategist uh, like no other, using these foxes as his friends uh, to help him in the battle. Again, it's all meant to be humorous. Pride comes before a fall. And we see it in every instance with these Philistines. Davis, again, is always great, but he says, Dear reader, you needn't be so glum. Don't be so concerned about the Philistines. Think how your Israelite brother would react to the story. If you're an Israelite, you are giggling 
And so David says, go ahead and laugh a little bit. We should laugh. It is funny. It's meant to be humorous. But everything humorous in scripture is meant to teach a lesson. And so it is a diode. Uh, we certainly see that here. It's not good to be an enemy of God. And so the vineyards are lit on fire. And we have to remember Judges 13. Lest we take the moral high ground. What about the poor foxes? What about the Philistines? Remember Judges 13.1. They have been under servitude for 40 years. They've been under oppression for a very long time. And so now finally they are receiving their just comeuppance by way of Samson. So vengeance because of his wife uh, ignites all of the grains. We see the standing grains is lit. Verse 5 burned up both the shocks and the standing grain as well as the vineyards and the olive grove. So there's vengeance because of his wife against Israel's oppressor. But then we see him continue to take vengeance because of her death. Now again, he still loves her. Yes, she's been given away. Yes, she's, uh, she sold him out. But even then, he's angry at the Philistines for what they're going to do. And there is perhaps some poetic justice. She tried to avoid being burned. Uh, and the irony is that she uh, is burned. And so we see in verse 6, And the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they answered, The son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife, uh, and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Now again, Samson uses this as an occasion. God uses this as an occasion to bring judgment upon the Philistines. And Gil views it positively. Again, remember that old boy, new boy divide. Gil, uh, uh, John Gill recognizes it in a positive way. He says, though Samson did not mean to act, nor did he act in the following instances as a private person taking private revenge. All the modern guys say that. Samson is just vengeful. But we're going to see in verse, uh, uh, verse 7, he says, I will cease. And I'll just draw that out in just a moment. But though Samson, um, but as a public person, Gil says, and judge of Israel, and took occasion from the private injuries done him to avenge the public ones of the children of Israel upon the Philistines. And they might thank themselves for giving the opportunity which they could not justly condemn him for taking. Again, remember the whole situation. They have been complacent. And now God is using these occasions to bring judgment upon them. And so we see Samson's response in verse 7. The righteous vengeance. Samson said to them, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you. He's going to bring vengeance upon them. But notice, he's not as out of control as we all might think. After that, I will cease. Once I've brought the judgment upon them, once there has been a just rendering of that justice, then I'll stop. He is not this brute beast who is out of control. He is going to cease when it's all said and done. They just continue to provoke him and they just continue to lose in the battle. And so he, he, he uh, brings another great slaughter, verse 8. So he attacked them hip and thigh and with a great slaughter. What does hip and thigh mean? Did he kick them in the hips? 
Is it the fact that he injured their hips so they cannot move? Or as one commentator said, there's just hips and thighs everywhere. Uh, who knows? But uh, it's probably explained uh, by with this great slaughter. It is just like a decimation. It is a domination uh, that comes by way of Samson. So he takes vengeance. He slaughters these ones here. Uh, it doesn't say how many. And then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock uh, in Edom. So he goes to dwell in the cave in Judah, which will become important uh, when we get to verse 9. But I do think one thing that we can take away from these first eight verses is the poetic justice that God brings upon his enemies. Again, this lesson is for God's enemies. Don't be an enemy of God. If you're not in Christ, Flee to Christ and stop being an enemy of God. Look to Christ by faith, and the beautiful thing is that those who are enemies become friends with God. That's what reconciliation is. God had enmity with man, but God reconciles man by way of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are still today enemies of God. I mean, the Bible talks about the children of God and the children of the devil. I mean, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. There are enemies of God and there are current enemies of God. And the beautiful thing is, they look absolutely ridiculous. Psalm 2 says that God laughs at them. God is laughing at Xi Jinping and his patriotic whatever law, education law. Like these guys are futile. And the most comforting thing is, is that God will judge them one day. And it's a comfort for God's people because of the pain that those enemies can inflict. And it's not wrong for the people of God to pay, uh, pray for justice, not vindictiveness, but for God to judge his enemies. We have to enter into the pain that they're going through to understand that sentiment just a bit. To illustrate it by way of perhaps a funny illustration, maybe it won't be as funny to you as it was to me, but I'd like to learn the origin of some of the songs we sing to our children. I really want to find out the origin of the song Rockabye Baby. Now, there are differing views on what it could mean. Nobody knows perhaps the main origin of it. Some suggest that it could be women working in the field and they put their babies in a tree that would rock them to sleep. Or there's another one that I found more funny. In 1688, in England, James II, Catholic king, had a son. And the Protestants were so concerned that there would be a Catholic dynasty. Now again, you have to enter into the situation. They have suffered persecution since 1662. So Rockabye Baby was a song about that baby dying so that there would be no Catholic dynasty. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. Down will come baby, cradle, and all. But when you see the situation, when you understand what's going on, we cannot judge people for functioning like that. And we're not meant to be vindictive, but we're meant to recognize that justice comes from God. And we can pray, as Paul did in uh, 2 Timothy, that God would render according to their works. We want to see God's enemies fall. We want to see them saved, but we want to see them fall. 
and because it is a comfort for the people of God to know that God is with his people and God will bring them down. He will crush his enemies. And remember, that is the promise of the first gospel proclamation. Genesis 3.15. There's enmity. See the woman, see the serpent. See the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So vengeance is meant to make us laugh, but it's meant to teach a serious lesson. Namely, one should not be an enemy of God. The only way to not be an enemy of God is to flee to Christ by faith. So that's vengeance that makes us laugh. Let's then look secondly at loneliness that makes us cry. So we'll laugh and cry tonight. Verses 9 through 20. And notice we see the loneliness of Yahweh's servants. Brethren, this is the tragedy. Verse 11 is the tragedy of the entire narrative. It's not Samson and the women that he loves. It's what we see in verse 11. So verse 9. Now the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. That's what the name of the place would be called, Jawbone. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? So they answered, the Philistines, we have come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done to us. There seems to be this tit for tat going on uh, in the narrative. And so they answered, uh, we have done to, so we've come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done. And notice the Judahites help. That's the problem. Verse 11, 3,000 men of Judah. We've gone from Judges 1, where we see that the tribe of Judah is ready to be the ones to continue the conquest, to now the ones that are perfectly happy being under the Philistines. How quickly they have fallen. How quickly they have become complacent. How quickly they have become happy in their sin. How quickly they are happy in their servitude. This is the main problem. They have now decided, rather than volunteering to go with the deliverer to fight against the Philistines, they're going to send 3,000 men. They're even afraid of Samson. I mean, there's this infighting. Eventually, we're going to see that civil war in the flow of the narrative of Judges, although that civil war is very quick historically. But we see here there's this infighting amongst the people of God. There's Judah against Samson, who's of the tribe of Dan. Again, he is by himself in this entire book. And so the main problem, the, the terrifying words, the, tra uh, the tragic words, they go down to the cleft of the rock of Etam, which is in Judah, and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done? That's the problem. People need to stop worrying about everything that Samson does and listen to those words. Do you not know the Philistines rule over us? They're just happy in their sin. They're complacent in their sin. And yet God is still saving them anyway by way of the one that they're going to hand over. Davis says, sad, sad words. Here is a people who have acquiesced to bondage, who can no longer imagine anything beyond the status quo, who see deliverance as a threat to peace, who look upon Yahweh's enemies as their rightful lords. Israel is a people who can forsake Yahweh instantly 
but who would not think of being faithless to the Philistines? What a pitiful question. That's the problem, isn't it? They're happy to forsake Yahweh. They're happy not to do what Yahweh says, but they'll do what the Philistines say out of fear. They got it all backwards. And that is the tragic line of the entire book. And really the entire narrative, but also could be the entire book. But verse 11 still. Samson responds. He says to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. He has this defense. I, they did to me, I have done to them. Just matching their words of verse 10. But then we see, he's not going to kill his brethren. He doesn't want them to kill him. They said to him, verse 12, We have come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Thank you. Then Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, saying, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we, we will surely not kill you. Thank you for that as well. Great, you're not going to kill me, but you're just going to hand over to the guys that are going to kill me. So you're basically going to kill me. But you can say all that you want, but uh, that's nice. But the sad thing is, again, they're just, they're just following what the Philistines have said. They're not going to fight against the Philistines. They're going to hand Samson over. They affirm, we don't kill you. We will just hand you over to be killed. And one commentator points out, it's better to be tortured by enemies than handed over by brethren. I think I agree with that. I would rather be tortured by enemies than handed over by the people that you think have your back. And usually, brethren, in, this gen- in, a, in the general flow of church history, one of my professors pointed this out, is that when there's oppression from without, there is usually more unity within. That is, when there, there's, you have to be united when there's threats. You have to be united when the government is cracking down. You see, we can understand why the government hates us, right? Why our enemies hate us. I get all that. The sad part is, usually when there isn't that external oppression, there can be more disunity within the people of God. There can be more pettiness within the people of God. And that's the stuff that is harder to deal with. That is the stuff that is harder to handle. The infighting that can occur among the people of God when there is prosperity from without. That shouldn't be the case. If we have freedom and we can worship... There ought to be more unity, but it seems to be in the times of oppression, there is more unity uh, that way. And I have to confess, and this is just a confession on my own part, I don't want to go back to lockdown. I don't want to go back to any of that sort of stuff, dear brethren. But there was something that was very uniting about all of that, wasn't there? There was something where that is the main thing that we had to focus on. On. And so I'm highly cognizant, I'm not saying it's happening, but I'm highly cognizant of the fact when things are good from without, there can be problems from within. And so may, I don't want to have a self-fulfilling prophecy or anything like that. I'm just saying we have to be careful, but I get why the government can't stand me. It's hard to deal with the brethren when they can't stand you. So I, it's really tragic. This whole, this whole book, this whole section is tragic, isn't it? The loneliness that Samson endures. He is by himself in this entire uh, book. In this, sorry, in this entire section that we see. So, he puts on 
They, they bind him, verse 13, with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Uh, they come to Lehi, verse 14. The Philistines came shouting against him. Pride cometh before a fall. Uh, again, I have a dark sense of humor. And the point is, we're supposed to see, oh great, they're going to puff themselves up. They think they've won. And then, you know, God just brings them down. I don't like that when it happens to me, when I puff myself up and then God brings me down. But I do get a kick out of it when it happens to other people. But uh, it's happening here. Verse 14. Then the spirit of the it is a funny it is a, we have to follow that sort of sarcastic tone that's the tone of the book so and sadness too uh, I don't want to be gloomy just yet I guess I just was gloomy but that's okay verse fourteen then the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire and his bonds broke loose from his hands. Can you imagine the look on their faces when that happened? I mean, it's a God's doing, right? It's God bringing this about. It's the Spirit of the Lord. We saw the Spirit of the Lord come upon him with the lion. And the Spirit of the Lord come upon him when he went down and got those 30 garments. Now the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him again to aid him and help him as he's going to uh, bring a great victory. Uh, as he's going to kill 1,000 of these men and so it is miraculous so they melt that's the language they it's almost like they melted off of him and so he grabs a fresh jawbone it has to be fresh so that it's not doesn't have to be fresh but the reason that it's fresh is because it's not brittle and they probably the donkey's teeth are still there so what it actually would have been a pretty mighty weapon but the miraculous thing is it's not your typical weapon I mean, it's not a sword. I mean, we saw how he destroyed and tore apart a lion with his bare hands. Now it's going to be a donkey's jawbone. He's going to do this, and it's going to be a great victory that God shall bring. So he grabs that jawbone fresh, reached out of his hand, and took it, and killed a thousand men with it, just like that. Boom. God wipes them out. Samson wipes them out. And we see that Samson is a bit of a poet. See, he's not the big brute that we all think he is. He likes poetry. And so we see, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. There is a play on words in the Hebrew. Donkey and heaps come from the same root. So there's kind of a lovely play that is pun that is happening here. And it's heaps upon heaps. And so the place is then going to be called Jawbone Hill. So we see that in verse 17. And so it was, when he had finished speaking, that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called the place Ramoth Hill, Lehi, that is jawbone height or jawbone hill. So the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And again, Gil points out the fact that he recognizes that it comes from God. He's not ascribing it to himself. Uh, but he's referencing the jawbone to recognize where uh, the, the miraculous deliverance that was brought by God through him. So he is a lonely servant, but God is with him and God helps him kill a thousand men. It's funny how those things in the Bible just quick. He just killed a thousand men. No big deal. Just a thousand men with a donkey's jawbone. But we also see he does need some help in verses 18 through 20. And so he's brought this great victory. He's been lonely. 
but we see that he does still have his needs. And so verse 18, then he became very thirsty. I mean, that would tucker someone out, killing a thousand men. And so he cried out to the Lord. He's not a disembodied spirit, a spirit like Elijah, similar to Elijah in 1 Kings. After he kills the prophets of Baal, what happens? He flees and he says, Lord, please take my life. That's exactly what Samson says. You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. He ascribes it to God. He recognizes that God did it. Again, he is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Again, some of the modern man viewed as him doing it for himself. But again, the older man viewed it as an act of faith. I mean, he is ascribing it to God. He is crying out to God in his time of need. In his time of weakness, he cries out to the Lord. And there's going to be another time where he cries out to the Lord in his weakness in Judges 16. And he's going to cry out in faith. So he cries out, I'm going to die. I've killed all these men, this great deliverance. And I'm going to die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. Lord, I need some water. I need some sustenance. I need some food. Don't underestimate that, brethren. Sometimes we just need a little food and a little sleep and a little water. And we might just feel a little bit better with our life, possibly. And so God provides, verse 19, God split the hollow place that is, uh, that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank. God provided another miraculous provision from God. It should draw our attention God, to God's provision in the wilderness, Exodus 17 and Numbers chapter 20. Again, it's a lesson for Israel. God provides. God is the one they can cry out to, and God will provide for them. And he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, he called its name En Hakor, which is Caller's Spring, which is in Lehi, which is Jawbone, to this day. And so it's a remembrance that it was the place he called upon Yahweh. And Yahweh aided him. And then verse 20. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. That will also be repeated uh, next week in Judges 16. He judged Israel 20 years. So he was by himself for quite a long time. And I think the lesson to take away from this section. Is the help God provides for his lonely servants. The help God gives for his lonely people. Now. Thanks be to God for the communion of saints. We hopefully encourage one another and build up one another. Hopefully we don't always feel like we're all alone. But sometimes, depending on the trial, we can feel quite alone. I mean, some people try to sympathize with what we're going through, but they can't enter in because they have not gone through it themselves. Doesn't mean we don't pray. Doesn't mean we don't encourage. But nonetheless, sometimes it can feel like the people... Of, uh, that we, in our own trial, whatever that may be, that we are alone. There's always a place we can go. There's always someone we can call upon. There's always someone we can look to, even if 3,000 men of Judah, uh, who are supposed to be our brothers, come at us and say, we're going to hand you over to the enemy. There's always our great God that we can lean upon, who will never leave us nor forsake us. That is the comfort that I think we can see in Judges 15. That God is with his people. God will help his people. God will encourage his people. God will aid his people. And the comforting thing that we see as well is the salvation that God brings. 
and what he does for his people, how he delivers them, he saves them, and he provides for them, walking with them each and every day. We might not always feel like God is near, but God is always near. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So as his children, whether we laugh or cry, we can always call upon his name, for we have such a God and a friend who will never fail us. So let us remember that, brethren. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your great salvation, and we are thankful that we were not searching for you, but you were pleased to save us. You were pleased to give us new hearts. You were pleased to give us the gifts of faith and repentance, that we might look to Christ and receive the gifts of justification and adoption and Uh, the blessing of sanctification and the promise of glorification, all these things that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we confess there are many things that we can endure in this life uh, in which we feel alone. But help us to remember that you are always with us and help us as we are able to encourage and uplift our brethren, whatever, whatever they may be going through as well. We are thankful for the communion of saints. We are thankful for the encouragement that your people can be to us. And we are thankful for the encouragement that your word is, that we can always call upon you, even when we are uh, uh, anxious about the future, even when we are dealing with a certain sin that we want to have dealt with, we can always call upon you and you will hear us. And we're thankful that you will bring uh, justice and vengeance upon your enemies. Vengeance is yours. And help us to remember that. We ought not to go seeking that, but help us to remember that you're the one who shall bring it. And so may we trust you in that. May we know that uh, even though we see uh, nations raging and we see dictators and leaders trying to assert uh, themselves as God, we know that you are laughing at them. We know that you are holding them in derision. We know that they should kiss the sun lest he be angry. And so thank you for that, uh, that, uh, that call even to kiss the sun and come to him by faith. But we're thankful that even... Uh, that if that does not happen, you will bring justice upon your enemies. So thank you for the encouragement that that is. Thank you for the times that we can learn in your word from humor and laughter. And thank you for the things that we can learn in times of sorrow, knowing that you are the same God who is with us in each and every one of those instances. And we ask and pray that you be with us tonight. Please have uplifted us and encouraged us and help us. As we go out into the world, give us the strength that we need for tomorrow. Give us a good rest tonight to be prepared for tomorrow. And thank you that you are God. So thank you for all you do. 